is up y'all welcome back to another weekly episode of keeping it real with Jalen. thank y'all so much for tuning in and, and also for being here if you can't tell by today's title we're gonna be talking about addiction recovery and sobriety with no one other than Dee pfeiffer and kiana naini i am ecstatic and very happy and excited to record this episode if you cannot tell so without further ado i'm gonna go ahead and um ask them to introduce themselves. We actually heard from Kiana um, in a couple of episodes in season one um, where we were talking about grief, loss, and making meaning. So without further ado, ladies, would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, I'm Dee Dee Pfeiffer, and I'm an actor on ABC's Big Sky, and I'm a UCLA graduate uh, of the master's program. I have a master's of social work, and I'm an alumni of CSUN, a bachelor in psych. (laughs) And I have a good friend named Kiki, and here she is. Kiki's back. Hello, everyone. It's good to be back with all of you. As you remember, I also have my master's in social welfare from UCLA. I am also a CSUN alum. And you know, I think what I really love about this is that we are all coming together. Um, You know, our, our journeys through academia and how we all went to CSUN. And, and that's the we, beauty of this. <laughs> that, yeah, we've just done so much, such um, incredible work together. So, yay. Yes. It's good to be having me too. I'm really excited and very grateful to be here today. Well, thank you guys so much for being here and taking the time out to meet with me. And for those of you who don't know, I'm actually in a master's program um, and getting my master's in social work. So I'm going to be right there with them, working alongside with them. Um, and it's been a beautiful journey so far. Um, so as mentioned before, if you guys can't tell by the title of today's episode, we're going to be talking about addiction, uh, sobriety, and recovery um, with Didi Pfeiffer and also with Kiana Naimi. Um, so ladies, it's just going to be a conversation that we're having with each other. Um, if there's some questions that you don't feel comfortable answering, that's totally fine too. Um, and, and, you know, just giving your experience um, as, you know, you're going through your recovery and things like that. Um, well, like I said, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. One thing um, I'm a huge advocate for is having a conversation about addiction. Yes. Uh, I have, yes, because I have a learned learned life experience through with addiction and, of course, through our education. But I'm telling you, there's nothing like being in the bowels of it. Yeah. And living with the, uh, uh, the addict inside oneself, you know? Um, and then now I'm four plus years in recovery. Yes. Thank you. And one of the reasons why I was so um, a- activated in my disease for so long was there's such shame around addiction. Yep. The shame is kneecapping. You're embarrassed to say you have a problem. It's not even a problem, by the way. Let me correct myself. It's a disease. Addiction yeah. is a disease. And just like cancer, it's not a choice. And it needs to be assessed for and then treated like cancer. So yet we still have the social stigma around it. I know people who are still so shy and nervous to say, hey, I'm in recovery for addiction, whether it's meth, alcohol, sex, gambling, I don't care what the DOC is. Yeah. Addiction is an addiction and it's a disease, it's not a choice. And I think if we can come from that perspective, we can maybe let go of some of the negative stuff around it and have the conversation because otherwise I tell you it's almost impossible to come out and ask for help as long as we feel embarrassed, shame, or like losers because we can't stop. And there's so, like like you said, there's so much stigma around it and I think it's beautiful that we live in a society, you know, as social workers and, you know, in a society where I guess it's more common to talk about it. It's not, 
even though, yes, there is a stigma still attached to it and it's still some shame to it, I feel like there's a lot of people who are a lot more open to speaking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's through lived experience, whether, you know, it's through professional experience, whatever. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing that we can talk about this, right? And it's, like you said, it's okay, essentially, to talk about it. It's, we're, it, we're at the, I think, in the beginning of it. It's it's starting to be an easier conversation to have. Yeah. It's in the and the TV shows and what have you. It's the beginning, but the bulk of the United States, believe it or not, <laughs> are still thinking from an old lens and an old perspective, mm-hmm. right? And so, I'll, here's a good example. I'm on a show called Big Sky, like I mentioned before, and I'm played Denise Brisbane, who we also made a sober character, which is super fun. And yet, I come on the set, I'm like, hey, hey, what's going on? I'm sober, how are you? And they're like, whoa, whoa, she threw that in there. I'm like, that's right. <laughs> because it really needs to be part of the conversation. Yeah. I'm 58, I'm in recovery, I'm a single mother, two boys, um, I'm also a social worker, I'm a lot of things, right? So if that is something that's still secret, and something I'm nervous and scared and shy about just throwing in there, it still means that there's some... Um, there's still some stuff going on out there in a negative way. I will be on the set and say that, and I'll have a director or a PA or a producer or a writer or another actor, whoever, come over, over to me and say mm-hmm. quietly, I love how open you are. I have 15 years sober. I love the way oh, you're wow. just... And I'll say, why? I said, congratulations, why are you whispering? Yeah. And they'll stop. I go, and that's why I'm loud about it. I don't expect you to be loud about it. Yeah. But you're over 15 years? Are you kidding me? That takes such strength and and resilience and 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 um, a strong will to want to live every day to have 15 years or one day of sobriety under your belt and to say it's weak is nuts. Yeah, nothing in my life has taken more strength mm. and integrity and courage than to say, hey, I need help. I need help with this. I can't do this by myself. So why do you? From your experience, why do you like think that people might become addicted to whether it's shopping, gambling, sex, uh, alcohol, drugs? Well, one of the things I think Kiki and I talk about this all the time about teasing out things. I have a huge problem with. Hmm, how do I say this? Okay, we have often in our uh, careers have social worker careers have these assessments. Right? Yes. Check yep. boxes, and then we can find the DSM five, and the insurance pays for it, and then we give you a treatment plan. Right. Which is dandy most of the time a lot of times that's not going to work because what i discovered when i was in intensive inpatient rehab in my 50s going through menopause yes Mm -hmm. not sexy not sexy but let me tell you it saved my life okay and what i learned was when i went in there the girl who ran the rehab said take your hat off i know you're i was right in the middle Mm. of ucla take your hat off take that clinical hat off yeah you're a patient while you're here best thing she could have told me because what I realized is in this one um, clinic that I went to she was also a uh, an addiction specialist but also a trauma specialist Ooh. they're different things so if you think you're treating alcoholism only without a mental uh, issue quite possibly or trauma or Kiki let's talk about grief there's a lot of layers that can happen right absolutely Right? And if you're not assessing for each one individually and you don't know how to treat each one individually, there's going to be a problem there. Your relapse is waiting to happen or the apps or like say the trauma is not being truly addressed in a, um, like, like Kiki can tell you all the different um, modalities that really go in and deal with trauma, right? Yeah. Because 
alcoholism is a disease over here. Mental health is, is something else over here. Absolutely. And I'm almost, I'm a big believer of a multidisciplinary kind of wraparound way of dealing with it. Have someone who knows addiction help you over here. Have someone mental health help you over here. And by the way, get a physical before you go in because often your blood work is often having used and that can look like a mental illness when it's actually your blood work. Mm. Years. Low iron makes you, gives you fatigue. Fatigue gives you depression. And so now they're, now they're treating depression when really it could be low iron. So it's safe to say that, like, when you go in to get treatment, it could be coupled with, like, so many different things. You could be dealing with homelessness. You could be dealing with mental health. You could be dealing with, God forbid, you just lost someone. Or, you know, you could be dealing with, you just had a traumatic experience happen to you, whether, you know, whatever that may look like. So it's not a one-stop one stop shop. It's not a one-stop one fix-everything kind of thing. And I think as a social worker, anybody working in this these fields, whether yeah. it's people homelessness or departmental health or even in, in, in any uh, environment, the most important thing is going with an open mind. Mm-hmm. Do not go in with already, like Kiki and I talk about this all the time, don't go in with your agenda. Yes. Do not go in with your agenda, even though you're the, the department that you're working with may have their clinical modalities they're using that's fine but use that as a template Mm. and let the client be part of their treatment plan i used to tell my clients this is your treatment plan man i'm here to help guide you you tell me what's going to work for you and what not and then we'll we'll tailor it to you so more of like a client-centered approach absolutely and then you start to empower them you scaffold them you you because these people often have lost complete control of their lives they're feeling useless hopeless right they just feel like big losers so you're going to help not only help them through that tough time but you're gonna help empower them how to yes. take their life out of you know what and i'm grabbing two little things right now in my hand grabbing it by the you know what <laughs> showing them that they can do it again slowly right because uh, it, it's 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 a it makes the clinicians work harder mm-hmm. but it's much more effective and, and important I, I feel so Kiana how do you think that like grief ties in with like addiction I was just waiting to jump in and use the word <laughs> please just I jump was... in <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna use the G word again of course it's great but like point... no I know right um I don't know what G word you're thinking but in my... <laughs> it's it's grief, okay? You know that this whole podcast shows people that social workers were kind of cool. Kind of <laughs> we are. <laughs> kind of, kind of. Okay, so, so, you know, when we think of addiction or how it presents, really, it's a way to cope, right? Yeah. It's a short-term solution to a long-term problem. And what do I mean by that? I mean, short-term, in the moment, it can be tad bit effective, right? Because if you are heartbroken, if you are going through a transition, right? If you don't have the ability or the capacity to express whatever it is that you may need, and your drug of choice, like Dee Dee said, can take the edge off by 5%, right? So in that moment, yeah, it does get them through that period of time, right? Over time, though, it causes a bigger problem. Right. So is it, like, safe to say that even if you just try something once, like, you can become addicted? No, 
not necessarily. Not at all. There's no, no. And then there's addict, addicts. Gotcha. So what you're saying is if normie is going to use their drug of choice, mm-hmm. it helps that the pain, self-medicate is what we call it. That's going to, it will become a problem. Will it become into an addiction? Probably not because a normie is different. They're just self-medicating, right? Mm. But it's true. They're drinking and driving. They're losing everything. Now they're homeless. All of a sudden, right, the drinking in itself or the meth or the drugs or the gambling or whatever it is, they're using whatever that trauma, the pain, the grief, right, becomes problematic. But for an addict, it's a whole nother level of a problem because an addict can't stop. Like, I don't understand why you would ever leave half a glass of wine on the table. Like, that just makes sense to me. You ask any addict, we don't get that behavior. A normie goes, what are you talking about? I I was finished. What do you mean you were finished? I chugged that puppy and another bottle (laughs) when I went home. Right? So there's an addict and then there's somebody who's self-medicating. Both are problematic on two different levels because also an addict, addicts also have a biology. It's a brain thing too also, yeah. Whereas a normie is probably self-medicating from the trauma, the grief, the other elements that are being not assessed for and certainly not being treated, right? Right. Right, and exactly. Thank you so much for clarifying that because I... I keep wanting to say it's important that people think that people have choices. Why yeah. does she just stop drinking? Trust me. If I could, I would, and I tried all the damn time. But that's hmm. what makes an addict different. I had to go to re- I had to go to intensive rehab, leave my children, my my animals, my family, gone. I mean, and Kiki, you no one saw me for a month or heard from me. I mean, intensive inpatient. You know, for those of us who are addicts, we have to really shake it up. Whereas somebody like you were saying, Kiki, say who's dealing with grief, undiagnosed or treated grief, depression, bipolar, whatever it might be, and is using alcohol or meth or sex or whatever to self-medicate that's a different treatment plan that's a different assessment and treatment plan than someone who's an addict gotcha now would you say for yourself uh didi was going into inpatient the best option for you had you tried like outpatient before um committing to doing inpatient i'd never asked for help Mm. i'd never asked for help because i was uh, a high-functioning alcoholic and i was riddled with shame and embarrassment because I was not only a fifer, but I, I was an actress, but now I'm at UCLA doing my, my uh, one of two years uh, of a 10 year academic journey to become a social worker. And I felt like the big and uh, the biggest loser of all times because I couldn't stop. And if you ask anybody who uh, is an addict, we always try to stop. Yeah. Those are baby relapses across the way. And what happens is you hit this, what they call the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Ask me what was your bottom, Dee Dee, right? I'm like, which one? Hmm. <laughs> I a lot of bottoms. And because my addict was so clever, and most are, and I was high-functioning because my dad was an alcoholic. He taught me how to do it well, right? I learned from the best, my dad. Um, I learned how to be high-functioning and try to hide it, although I, people around you, they know you're not hiding it from anybody, right? Right. And especially children. My children saw me slowly dying in my family, but no one could get near me because I wasn't ready. And here's the most important thing, Kiki and I talked about this. Nobody's ready for treatment until they are ready. Not when you decide they're ready or the Department of Mental Health or a court decides you're ready. Not until you, the addict, decides you are ready will you receive any tre- the best treatment in the world or the worst treatment. It's irrelevant. I was ready. I just didn't know how to ask for help. So my family went in to do a re- an intervention. And they said, we'd like to do an intervention. And I said, you don't have to. Just tell me where to go and I'll go. Yeah. And my family went, what? what? They did not expect that. Cause they, they were going to expect me to tell them to F off, stay in your own lane. You don't know what it feels like to be me. You don't know my story. Right. You know 
you're not, you know, you're not a middle child of five. You know, and just the whole thing, you start throwing all your laundry, dirty laundry at them. And then they go, okay, 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 leave her alone. Right? Of course you drink. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what we do. We will push you away and put you in your place in a minute, right? I didn't do that that time. I said quietly to my, my uh, sister, I have been looking at 1-800-anonymous addiction hotlines. Mm-hmm. That and I wrote it down into my bed. I just didn't have the courage to call. So wow. I was ready. I, I was scared. I didn't know how it worked. I was scared of the unknown. I was scared of being, feeling like a, a loser in public. I mean, just all of that stuff. And when I, so when, when they came to me and said, we want to do this, I said, you take care of my kids, man, and I'll go, because I was ready. So when I went in, I went in open-hearted, open soul, open mind, because I really wanted help. I needed help. I was ready, right? Yeah. So people, that's what we're going through before we're ready. Mm. And so for me, Mother Earth took care of me right at the time that I wanted help. I didn't know how to ask. My family came in and did an intervention or tried to, but I blocked that puppy. <laughs> I <laughs> the car up with the suitcase and you're all going to write letters to me about that show. And of course, they're like, no. I said, you have to do that. I'll go, I'll go. <laughs> but no, but it, all joking aside, I mean, it's... um. It's so leveled. It's so leveled, you know? And, I, um, and I'm glad that you had, like, the family support to, to do that because it's kind of like what you said. Like, yes, you can be court-ordered. Yes, you can uh, be, I, I don't know, like, threatened. Like, you, you get your kids take, you know, things like that. But it's up to you to decide when you want to get the help. And I think that's so important to say because as a social worker, I know sometimes, even for myself, you know, um, I want the best for my clients. I want the best. I want them to be the ve- the best version of themselves, and I want them to, you know, access the resources that they're entitled to have. But mm-hmm. you beautifully said it. You can't force someone to do something until they're ready. And you know, it's so funny you brought this up because I was going to do a shout out on my Instagram about this. I when you see somebody that you know and you love who's clearly actively in their disease, yes. which means they're using, they're using right. And you want to help them, like you or a social worker or a family or a family member who want to help. The best thing you can really do is go to that person and say, I can see that you're off. Mm. I can see that you're off. I don't know what's going on with you and I don't know what it feels like to ever be you, okay? But I just want to know I love you and I see you and I hear you and I'm over here for you when you're ready for help. Mm. I'm just over here waiting for you when you're ready that's really i think the best you can say to somebody who's active in their disease because otherwise you're going to get pushed back you're going to get yep. yelled at you yep. called in your own damn lane you don't know me you know you're because you're, they're not ready but when you say you give them all the leash in the world and just say i'm i see and feel that there's something not going right with you i don't know what it is and then one day if you want to talk i'm here or if you just need help i'm here whatever that looks like you tell me but i'm over here and i love you and then you let that leash go, let it go and let them then find their way because the recovery is there help is there and but they will find their way they will and i think that's the hardest part is to let them find their way because often sometimes they don't i've lost people addiction they they've they didn't make it right they yeah. didn't find their way they went to the light too soon and that's what we're all afraid of isn't it losing somebody we care about exactly Can client? did you want to say something which, by the way, I completely agree with you. Dee and I have these conversations all the time within our day to day. Okay, one of many reasons why I love her. Um, mm-hmm. I love you. 
I love you more. Sorry. And I can get a sentence out before interrupting. And you know what? It is so. I'm going to be really open and honest and transparent for a moment. It is so fucking difficult to just sit there and hold space for someone that you love entirely and to watch them do all that they do. Yeah. Okay. To give them all that leash. It takes so much strength, right? That's not easy. It's not easy one bit. And that's the only thing you can do because absolutely until it's not for them to claim, not gonna happen. Yeah, you're right. That, that's hard as an individual, as a human being, and certainly as a clinician. I mean, Kiki has these clients all day long, and at the end of the day, I, I can feel it. She has given a little part of her soul to each yeah. one. That she just could, she can, and somehow has to let it go, give it to Mother Earth or her higher power or her God or whatever it is that Kiki is is can release it to, and hope and leave space that person will find their way. That is so hard. And again, I want to give you props, girl, for going to see and becoming one of us. Yeah. Because social workers are the, I'm going to have a show. You can be on my show. Well, Look, I, let's do it. <laughs> I just to get off my butt and do it. But, but I want to showcase social workers like you guys, you know, to show people that we're not just people who go in and take your kids out of your home. Right. As a matter of fact, we're trying not to take your kid out of your darn home. Okay, not me because I don't work with kids, but right, that's not your goal. Your goal is not, I'm not going to take the kid out. Right. I'm going to go there, talk me out of, talk me out of taking your kid out of this home, right? Or we're going to get you resources so you can get it right. Otherwise, we do have to take the kid out. That's But Kiki and I don't work with kids. Um, that very reason because I'd yank them all out. I, I would be, you know, I would get arrested. Um, <laughs> so I would always like to help addiction and people who can hold their own. <laughs> I'm, I'm too, yeah, I'm too crazy. Um, but seriously, just what you guys do. God knows you're not doing it for the money, right? <laughs> A lot of people think we do, though. You're not going to get rich. This is why I would say, you only hear about the bad social workers. Right. You hear about the ones that are overworked or they're working with a broken system or what have you. But my God, girls, you two out there make me proud to say I'm a social worker. I'm not joking. I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's definitely appreciated because, I mean, just not even child welfare social workers, just social workers in general. We don't get the credit that we deserve. Oh, we're in the hospitals, right? Yeah. When you're there and the doctor comes in and says, hey, man, sorry about this, you got cancer, and leaves because he has no bedside skills, the social worker comes in and says, you know, she, she or he or they is there for the family, Yep. right? Or they're to advocate for the person without, because you know that when you're in a hospital and you're homeless, you, you're experiencing homelessness, they can't let you go unless there's a place for a, them to go. Yeah, yeah, and a plan, yep. Make sure that happens, right? We, we're, we, oh, by the way, where else are we, Kiki? We have a professor who worked with Clinton. Macro policy, right? Mm. What what did what did he do? Um, Taurus. He served. Yeah, he served on the cabinet of two um, administrations, the Obama administration and the Clinton administration. I want to say, and so yeah, wasn't it for disabilities and the older population? And wasn't he all up in there with policy when it comes to advocating for those populations? Oh, God, wow. Yo, please forgive me. I want to say it was with Department of Aging. Yeah, yeah. no, he was seriously like in, involved with policy and creating, yeah, I mean, at the top. And then you have all these amazing social workers working with communities right. in hospitals. 
hospitals, individual clinics. Um, oh my God, you know that we're not going to, they're, they're going to throw us out of UCLA. You know that, Kiki, right? Oh, wait, thank God we are. <laughs> Just completely through one of the big. God damn it, Didi! What did you do? You did. You made me forget. <laughs> I remembered his credits, and then I saw your beautiful eyes, and then I just forgot. <laughs> okay, you know. Oh, next time, just don't look at me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we could sit here all day and go over what, what social workers do and how we infiltrate in all areas of society, and people don't even really know. They just go social yeah. worker. Oh kids and that's it yeah I mean, we have people at internships with the lgbtq community of course the older population we had a guy interning in an all-female uh remember downtown the female housing place oh, downtown women's center oh yeah. i used to work there yeah, one of our guy interns yeah and these women were battered by men and had a lot yeah, of yeah i used to work there yeah, and he interned there. When we first got there, they were looking at him like, what are you doing here? And yep. he said, what, what I'm doing here? It turned to be one of the most life-changing internships for him and those women. Yeah. That's how we That's how we do it, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and, and it's like you said, like a lot of people don't <laughs> know that there's so many different branches of social work to go into, like military social work. Uh, yeah. Court. court social workers to help pick juries. Yep. I remember I looked at that for a minute. Yeah, there's just tons of stuff, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of branches that we can go into mm-hmm. and do, which is the beauty of social work. <laughs> no, and also, you remember that one title, which, of course, I forgot, Kiki, maybe you can help me, where you go in and um, a corporation hires you, and you go in and do an assessment and a battery of questions to the employees, and you come back with a report on the uh, emotional, like, temperature of, of the employees, the productivity, just this whole thing, and you come in... Whoa, I'm in New Mexico. You hear that? It's oh. a big. Whoa, <laughs> That's okay. Whoa, dude, drive that hog. Um, so it's basically uh, they go in and they help a corporation run the, the business better by the social worker going and doing the groundwork and compiling all the information on what do they like about their job, what do they hate about mm. their job, what can be better. And they compile all this stuff and go back to the boss and say, okay, here's a, here's an idea. Here's some ways to fix a lot of this stuff. So you have a harmonious group of people working together and you get the best product that way. That's a social worker, my friend, who goes in and does that. Well, so it's like an assessment of the company. There you go, yeah. That's awesome. And then, then if you at least have our degree, right, um, Kiki, where it's biopsychosocial, you go yeah. in and you can also see the climate of the culture, the climate of, you know, like, you, oh, you have a lot of people in here who are religious or you have a lot of people in here who, you know, just information which uh, can help create a more conducive and harmonious working environment, right? Because most big CEOs and the people who own it don't know anything about their employees. And the employees are down there bad-mouthing them and they're all angry. Yeah. You know, and then you have people robbing from them. You just have all this stuff. But if you create a really healthy, happy work environment and a social worker can go in and uh, help with that, you're just going to get, you know, it, it's just going to be better. Because on our show, I wanted that. I wanted all, everybody on my show mm-hmm. to have someone to talk to. Really important that everyone's mental health is taken care of on the show that I have yet to create. And Kiki and I need to get off our butts and make it happen. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's honestly how, like, addiction addiction can start, too, is, like, being unhappy in your job. Yes. You know, being unhappy, so unhappy in your job that you're using other means and factors to, like Kiana said, cope. You know, it's a coping mechanism, a short-term coping mechanism. So. 
Well, yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't may say that's addiction, but it's certainly self-medicating if you're yes. a dormy. Yes. But if you're an alcoholic or an, an addict, that just gives your addict is an excuse. Yeah. Well, I hate my mm-hmm. well, I, you work, I work, you drink a bottle of tequila every night, too. Adding that's fuel to it. the fire. <laughs> yeah, that's just the addict is having its hey, heyday. But if it's somebody who really is miserable in their job and doesn't have the coping skills on, on how to fix that or move past that or deal with it, you could absolutely self-medicate. And it becomes a problem drinker, I would say. Now, a lot of people disagree with me on that. Anybody, there was the philosophy that once you abuse alcohol at all, then you're an addict. I'm not, I'm not sure if I believe that necessarily. I think a normie can abuse it in certain times of their life. I and as long as they don't continue to use, so. Yeah, after that. Yeah. From, yeah. So what I remember from my substance use class at UCLA is that, you know, with addiction, regardless of what your drug of choice is, mm-hmm. right, is continuing to use regardless of the consequences. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a biological thing. And we'll use any excuse. Anything. Anything. Okay. So so for someone who has a porn addiction, okay, they will continue to purchase porn, engage in it, you know, watch it, so on and so forth after they have lost their job. Okay. Because that's all Uh. they do. After their partner has, you know, um, has left them. Okay, after their kids are no longer in contact with them. Okay, after they've been completely cut off from their entire social support uh, system, right? So we're continuing to use regardless of the consequences, right? And, and again, oftentimes, it's not that people don't know. Also, keep in mind that it's not easy, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of, work that needs to go into recovery is so fucking difficult dude what do i always say recovery is not for pussies excuse my language no (laughs) we keep it real here (laughs) because it's flipping hard so that's why when people say oh it's weak to ask for help i'm like oh have you ever tried to kick a habit that's literally mind altering you know Mm. what i mean that's what addiction is it's mind altering and you're trying to kick that and that's weak and you're saying i need a little help with that where is the week in that? Are you kidding me? Like you were saying, it, it, it's because what you're doing, you're trying to stay alive every day. Yeah. How is trying to stay alive every day weak action on any level? It's actually, it's courage up the wazoo. It's, you know, self-determination up the wazoo. There are days where you just go, F it, man, I, I'm going to use. And you somehow find a way. You know, whether it's reaching out And also, too, like, your body is going through a huge adjustment because your body has to get used to its pre. So your body just, you know, has to adapt back, you know, to what it was before. Well, yes. Physically, your body goes through hell when you're actively in your disease, whatever you're using. But I will say one thing. Mess is different than any other drug. Hmm. Mess takes a year, one year. To completely get to get back on track, it's we call it the devil's drug. It does not behave the same on the body as alcohol, heroin, pot, anything pills. It's different. Mess is a devil's drug, and everyone I know who's in sobriety and recovery for, for mess, it's a year. Where and the 
the withdrawals are so intense and so bad and the way, what they have to do to get through it is really difficult. No masturbating, no looking at anything sexual because it triggers parts of the brain that then oh, wow. uh, make them want to use. Yeah, it's like you don't have to do that when you're trying to like not use alcohol or pot or shopping or gambling. Meth is different. Everybody I went through, it's very intensive treatment plan for a year, which is why the relapse is just off the chart. It's the devil's drug. So if you have someone who's hooked on meth, man, give them a lot of slack. It's a really hard withdrawal, and it's really hard to get to the other side. That one is really hard. But otherwise, you're right. Your body goes through a lot of change, and you do have to transfer the addiction to something positive until you can just really go with the addiction itself. Good to know, because, I mean, obviously with... Uh like today's society and the population that I do work with, that is very common to see, you know, meth yeah. and, you know, other illicit drugs, but meth is, you know, a very common one that I do work mm-hmm. with a lot and see. So that's really interesting and good so, to know. Well, right. So if the clinician is, is dealing with their recovery and treating them like, like any other addict, that's a huge red flag. Yeah. Because if that means they do not know what meth does to, that, to the body enough to be treating that person and that concerns me because like like i said i learned a lot about this not only i learned about it in my rehab because i was very fascinated with why that there was such a difference between my friends who had meth addictions versus any other addiction and then the clinician was telling me well it's a it, it works differently on the brain receptors and the damage it does to the brain is different and so oh my god it's really a it's a bad one so those those people addicted to meth man my heart goes out to them for sure and sometimes harm reduction yep. might be a little bit easier for them to transfer from meth to a lesser drug and then continue going, you know, I mean, lesser and lesser and lesser versus cold turkey because it, it it's, oh, my God. I'm quite bad. sure it messes up the brain receptors and things like that if you just try oh. to quit you know, cold turkey. Because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we yeah. are we're all addicted to something yeah. in some way, right? And so we know when it's yeah. hard to quit something. It's it's really tough to quit something very cold yeah. turkey. And think about it. When you have someone who's withdrawing from pot or alcohol, you don't see them be so aggressive and violent as you do a method. Right. That is true. There's a reason for that. That's why they're very dangerous when they're withdrawing on the streets. And their behavior is very unpredictable. Not because they're a bad person. It's just that that drug is working on their brain receptors differently than, say, an alcoholic or any other kind of drug that affects the brain. So that's why they have to be handled differently. And um, unless people know that, it's misunderstood as just a violent, crazy person who's an animal. It's like that's not what's going on. Their body's completely being traumatized and taken over by this the devil's drug. And when withdrawing, the devil doesn't like to leave very easily, does he? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's why it's called the devil's drug. He's a bitch. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation, you know, with me, Didi, and also thank you, Kiana, as well. I mean, I know you guys said that you met at UCLA, right? And I know you said that you've um, you've been in sobriety for about four years now, and that you recently just graduated from UCLA. So, can you guys can you kind of talk about like your experience at UCLA? Kiki, tell them how we met and how we reunited. It's the best story ever. (laughs) It's one of my favorite stories of all time, honestly. I love telling it and retelling it. So we started MSW School at UCLA in 2017, and which feels like a million years ago at this point. I know, and it really wasn't. (laughs) I know, I know. But you know what? My gray hairs speak for themselves. So that's another story. Um, so 
We started in 2017, and we, you know, UCLA, similar to a lot of the other MSW programs, has a generalist approach, right? So the first year, you are with your cohort majority of the time, and so you spend a lot of time, you know, in the, in the same classes, right? It's the second year that you choose your area of concentration, is what they call it, what you want to specialize in. And so we were in our first quarter, and we were taking this policy class, Oh, bless that policy class. And so, Didi and I, I was uh, pacing back and forth in my chair. Didi was going uh, up and down the hallway, and we're like, okay, what the fuck are we going to do with this policy class? How are we going to get through this assignment? It was one of those. And, you know, we became really good friends, right? We would see each other in the hallways and hang out and talk, and I... I had no idea that, you know, um, she, you know, was drinking. And as much as she didn't know all the grief that I had, you know, been stuffing down. Right. right? And so, you know, we got through that quarter somehow, some way. We both got A's in that class, by the way. Um, I can't tell you how I did that. Not even to this day. <laughs> And so during the next quarter, so now we're in winter quarter, and you know, the, the grief for me has finally caught up to me. All that stepping down and pushing to the side and, you know, get out of my fucking way, that's not going to work anymore. And I decided to, and I ended up taking a medical leave to finally address what was going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was, anyway. And so I, I went on my medical leave, and, you know, Didi ended, uh, continued with, with the quarter. And the following quarter, spring quarter, is when Didi ended up taking her leave and checked into rehab. And, of course, I didn't know any of this, right? So we both ended up leaving, you know, dream school, dream program, yada, yada, yada. And when I came back the following fall, I had one of um, our colleagues uh, approach me and say, Kiana, did you know that, you know, Dee Dee went on a leave too? And I said, what? What are you talking about? And she goes, yeah, she went on a leave and she'll be back, um, you know, uh, next quarter. And there's this capstone coming up. And I wonder if the two of you could work together. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, our MSW capstone is like the second year of, uh, you know, I'm a sub-U school, and this is where you dedicate an entire year of research and so on and so forth. And so Didi and I were the only two people from the original cohort, right? Because at the, by this time, when I came back and then she came back as well, everyone else was graduating already. And so we were the only two from the original cohort, and we decided to link up. And she was so sweet enough to jump on my project our project idea and study childhood grief and one thing that she told me over and over again which i will never forget to this day is that we are not going to cry we are going to laugh and cry and do everything in between you know within this project and oh good heavens we we did just that and um you know that project brought us so close together so and, almost, and almost a nervous breakdown. Oh, and almost a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And, so, <laughs> and so now in my group of, you know, support, I guess Didi is, uh, 
one of the only people that I have contact with almost on an everyday basis. Like if I were to, I don't call her back, then she like calls nine one one and she freaks out. <laughs> Basically, pretty much, pretty much. So busy. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Miss Hollywood. I forget. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I go from so, social, and that's actually funny. You no one knew I was an actor. Remember, nobody knew I was an actor in right. my, my, any of my school. I had one professor go, "You look familiar," and I'm like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that is yeah, such a beautiful she story. She could get so excited. Yeah. So I went back to the when I went back to the show. No one was more excited for me than Kiki. She's like, "Oh my God, did you be on TV?" <laughs> <laughs> I literally kid you not. I remember yeah. we were, um, what were we doing? We were coding data. That oh, order. yeah, coding okay. data for our research project. <laughs> so sexy, so fun. Oh, God, says nobody. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in between people passing, I would just go, oh, my God. And <laughs> it was like I was the only one that knew that yeah, you no could hop knew. on a plane and, you know, start start shooting and it was like I couldn't even say anything else but all I would go is oh my god (laughs) it was like your own little language (laughs) yeah it was and it was like spontaneous out of nowhere we'd be coding and she'd go oh my god like out of the door I'm like I know honey I know it's really cool but listen we have all this really boring data that doesn't make sense I know I know well this is a bunch of crap I go I know it's a bunch of crap what are we gonna do oh my god (laughs) yes honey (laughs) that totally sounds like he got it too (laughs) yeah no, she had me laughing and smiling through all of that. It was really nice. I yeah. know. I love Kiana so much. <laughs> we love ourselves from Kiana. Yes, oh, yes, I yes. I love you guys, too. I do, I do. Well, so, thank yeah. you guys once again so, so much again for this, you know, for this much-needed conversation and for... You know, being a part of breaking that stigma and that barrier about talking about addiction. And kudos to you, Didi, for being sober and in the recovery for four years. I know it's definitely not easy. And I know, you know, a part of, you know, your journey has also been talking about it. So thank you for this. And, you know, thank you. I wish you you for giving me this opportunity, too. Of course. And I wish you much success. Thank you. Like I said, Jay, when when you do these, if one person listens to this, one person listens to this yeah. and gets something out of it, bam! It, That's all that matters. Yeah, all that matters. That's there all that go. matters. What were you gonna say, Kiana? Jay, may I? Yeah, um, may I jump in for a quick second? Of and, course. Uh, throw Dee Dee even more into the spotlight because. Oh, oh sorry. That's just. See, if you have, if, what? I know, I know, I know. Oh my God. Um, if, <laughs> <laughs> if you had one word of advice okay. for, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, okay, okay, for okay. anyone that wants to um, start their journey to sobriety, mm-hmm. what would that be? What would you tell them? I'm, first of all, thank you for that because I get really excited when I have the opportunity to kind of pull it into one line because it's such a big layered topic. I want you to think of this almost in a visual sense. When you're active in your disease, you are the identified problem. The day you decide to make a change and start your recovery, that day you start your journey on becoming the identified possibility. 
Hmm. And there's nothing more exciting than everyday choosing to be identified possibility because I promise you people may not say it when they're watching you every day trying really hard to well, basically live. You're showing them the possibilities are endless, even in their lives, because it's not easy. So think about it. You get to go from the identified problem to the identified possibility. And what an exciting journey that is. What a beautiful journey it'll be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a beautiful way to wrap things up. Beautiful way to wrap things up. And that is actually going to wrap up this week's episode of Keep It Real with Jalen. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week for another episode. Bye.